Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. And, you know, a question that I often hear is, why would anybody need to compute that fast? There's lots of problems where you have to compute that fast if you ever want to get an answer. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, a trip to see the world's fastest computer. We did a whole lot of COVID work, how the virus makes people really, really sick. Looking at solving multi-physics problems related to the modeling and simulation of nuclear reactors. Much more complicated mechanistic models of what's going on in opioids addiction one problem that requires a lot of flops, a lot of floating point operations per second, is climate modeling or weather modeling. We're really trying to crack hard problems. And so we need this combination of clever algorithm design with exascale computing to start to solve the challenges in biology and ecosystems. Hey, Vicki. Hey, Catherine. Hey, how's it going? Hello, Wes. So what are we talking about today? Well, I came across these incredible photos in Business Week a bit ago, and they were reporting on the world's largest supercomputer. In fact, it's linked to our write-up today. So the piece talked about the sheer computing power of this mega computer, and it breaking something called the exascale barrier. We're going to get into that, but my eyes popped, and I took it to you and Catherine, remember? Oh, yes, I remember this. You were very excited. And so were we, and so we all decided that you and Catherine needed to take a road trip. And we did. So this computer is called Frontier. It was built at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Lab, which is just outside Knoxville, Tennessee. We reached out to them and they said, come check it out. So we packed up our audio gear and we went. And we got to speak to some of the engineers and scientists who are using the supercomputer right now for a myriad of projects. Yeah, and we really can't stress enough how incredibly powerful this thing is. They're looking at questions that they were unable to answer ever before, like the origins of the universe, like potential cures for disease. And these kinds of questions actually really need a massive amount of computing power, and they haven't been able to do it up to now. Exascale is like a next level. So scientists are lining up out the door to use this thing. So we went down and we took a tour. I'm Justin Witt, and I am the program director for the uh, leadership computing facility here at Oak Ridge National Lab. We're housing some of the fastest and most powerful supercomputers in the world. Uh, we currently are deploying the world's fastest computer, the Frontier System, uh, and we also have uh, just down the hall the Summit supercomputer, which is at number five currently, I believe. All right, so we've established that this thing is fast, but what is fast? Like, how fast are we talking about? Yeah, we had the same question, and so we put it to him. 
Can you describe it a little bit? Like what has gone into it? How big is it? How fast is it? Yeah, sure. So we'll start with fast. You know, that's what Frontier is known for is being the fastest computer in the world at this point. Uh, and it's capable of about 1.6 quintillion calculations a second. That's 1.6 times with 18 zeros after it. When numbers get that big, they start to lose meaning, right? You can't, your mind can't grasp that. And one of the, the things we like to compare it to is if every person on the planet could do one calculation per second, uh, it would take four years for them to do all the calculations that Frontier does every second of the day. I think the engineering that went into the room itself is pretty astounding. For instance, there is so much computing capacity inside each cabinet of Frontier. And when I say cabinet, there are about 74 of these refrigerator-sized objects, and each of those makes up part of Frontier, and they're packed full of computing hardware. And each of those is very heavy. At this density, each cabinet weighs about as much as two F-150 pickups. And we have 74 of those plus supporting infrastructure plus the file system. And all, we're supporting about two uh, Boeing 747s on our raised data center floor at this point. So that, there was a lot of engineering that went into that uh, to, to make that happen. That image of each of those 74 cabinets weighing as much as two F-150 pickup trucks is, like, sticking in my head. How do you power something that big? This is a really complicated system, so I'm going to let the experts explain. So this part, I think, is, is a little like the behind-the-scenes tour at Disney. A lot of people think, oh, you, you know, like at home, I, I order a computer, it comes, we plug it into the wall. But with computers of this size, uh, for instance, we installed about 40 megawatts of power to run this computer. At its, at its kind of peak operating, it would use about 30 megawatts of that, and that's enough to power about 25,000 homes. And what you hear are actually these very large pumps pumping that 6,000 gallons of water to the system every, every minute. I just got to cut in here and say that's 6,000 gallons he's talking about. In a, One, they're in a closed loop system. So it's the same water being repurposed over and over again. But they are flowing through 36-inch pipes. We're talking like a yard across. Tell us about that, the 6,000 gallons, that is just to keep it cool. That is to keep it cool. If you put that much power in, you've got to get the heat back out. And in those small spaces, really the only way to do that is by circulating some fluid directly over each of the components on the computer. Do you have your own sort of miniature energy grid here, or how do you we power do. this? Uh, so we're actually powered from separate substations here, so if one goes down, we still get power to the computer and to the, to the mechanical plants. You'd think that the world's fastest supercomputer would be, I don't know, immortal or at least have a long lifespan, but we found out that it's actually not all that different from the computers we use. So what we like to do is run the computers in production with scientific users on the systems doing their work for, you know, at least five years. And then we like to overlap a year with the next computer. So, you know, we kind of say five to seven years is kind of the, the general time frame we like to keep these around. So while we were on the tour, there was one point where a technician had one of these huge cabinets open and he was sort of messing with the guts of it. So we got to see inside of it and we see all these microchips and copper and wiring. And it sort of got us thinking, 
how do you build this thing? We've all experienced the supply chain issues we've had over the last couple of years, especially due to COVID. And building a supercomputer, it doesn't matter if you're the Department of Energy, you're going to run into the same supply issues. So we asked them how it was for them. We jokingly say one of our biggest lessons learned is don't build a supercomputer during a pandemic. So the supply chain issues were non-trivial and uh, were hard to, to overcome. Frontier has 60 million individual parts in it. Uh, you know, that boils down to hundreds of individual part numbers. And the supply chain issues were across the board. I guess it was early 2020, we got word from Hewlett Packard Enterprises that their suppliers were saying, this could be a two year delay. We cannot get chips to do that. For us, we had some supply chain issues there, but it was even the 50 cent parts, the little reg voltage regulators and things that are in here. And at one point we had 18 people that their full-time jobs were every day going out and finding the parts to build Frontier. And so we shrunk that two year delay down to less than a three month delay and were able to, to mostly hold our schedule for this. Uh, but again, so they got it built. And my next question was, what's it like to use it? I asked Bronson Messer. He was another Oak Ridge scientist who was also along for the tour. Yeah, for the most part, you set at your own workstation and you log in to Frontier remotely. Almost all of our users, with, with some notable exceptions, are, are not local. Uh, in fact, we have a lot of international users, users all over the country, everywhere. I have students that, for example, don't interact with the computer any other way except through something called a Jupyter Notebook, which is actually a web interface to the computer, uh, and sort of everything in between. More from Oak Ridge National Lab when we come back. Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. Vicky, you mentioned earlier that scientists are lining up to use this thing. You can see why. How do they decide, though, which scientists get time on this computer? And then once they get the time, what do they actually use it for? Remember Bronson Messer from earlier? He is actually the director of science for the Oak Ridge Leadership Computing Facility. That's where we were within this massive complex. And we had a chance to sit down and ask him. You are the, the go guy, right? You're the guy who says yes or no to the project. So how do you vet these? <laughs> like all peer-reviewed science, we use peer-review panels, right? So we have, uh, we have several different competitive uh, allocation programs for the machine. Uh, I, you know, some of them are open to everybody. Some are open mostly to DOE researchers. We also reserve a small amount of time for what we call our director's discretionary program. But for all these programs, we empanel other scientists to sort of decide, yeah, this, this is an important scientific problem and we need to use the resources to do this first. Or, you know, maybe this is important too, but maybe we should wait just a minute. So those same proposals get checked out 
And basically the, the question is, can they use the big computer and do they need to use the big computer? And if you can't answer both of those with a resounding yes, you probably, frankly, you probably don't want to try to compute on our big computer because it's, it's hard yeah. um, uh, for a variety of reasons. In vetting all of these, there has to be a certain amount of national security implications. We don't do any classified work here. It's a, we're strictly an open science shop at OLCF. So what, tell me what that means. It means that all the, all the science that we do, basically all the inputs and all the outputs can be published in the open literature and be promulgated to anybody, so in a journal uh, publication. We do have the ability to do things that are a little bit more sensitive than just strictly open science, things like um, protected health information or other things like that. Uh, but we take that sec those security measures really seriously. But what it boils down to is we do what's called an export control review on every single project that gets on the machine. We make sure that it's possible that these the results can be can be promulgated to, to everybody. How concerned are you all about? Uh, breach of security or hackers, and yeah. what kinds of safeguards do you have against yeah. that? So we have a we have a huge cybersecurity crew. So if you if you fielded the world's largest computer for for at this point more than a decade, uh, we have script kitties knocking at the door every five or six seconds. What's a script kitty? Um, somebody who wants to break into the computer for nefarious purposes, either either organize nefarious purposes or just hey, I ha I has hacked into the world's largest supercomputer kind of right. Thing. Yeah, so w the, we have we have huge effort in intrusion detection, making sure that uh, uh, the the edge of our, our computer is protected from that kind of thing. Um, and just to back up a little bit, why is it called the frontier? Yeah, I think it really. I think Frontier is an apt, uh, apt name for the machine. Um, it's it's the culmination of a of a more than decade long project to get us to the exascale. More than a decade ago, the the federal government basically made a commitment to getting us to the exascale as a as a concrete sort of flag that we could. So when, plant. You, when you say the federal government, is it Congress? Was it legislated? It's was everybody? It, it, it was a whole of government effort, right? And, and of course, it, it took getting Congress behind it because they control the purse strings and it, and it costs money. And so there's really two major components of getting us here. There's this machine and other machines like it, but this machine first. And then alongside of that, there's, there was something called the Exascale Computing Project, which was really concerned with making sure that we had software and codes that could actually take advantage of the machines once they got here. That was a big worry, say, seven years ago, that we would build it and nobody would come and nobody could come, right? Because they wouldn't be ready. Uh, one, one problem that requires a lot of flops, a lot of floating point operations per second, is climate modeling or weather modeling. Now, the thing about weather modeling is you kind of have to get an answer before the weather actually happens or it's not super useful, right? And so uh, weather codes typically want to be able to get answers within just a few hours or maybe even sub-hour in some cases. Um, to be able to do that and to have the same, the physical fidelity that's going to tell you it's going to rain here and it's not going to rain there, or you're going to have a windstorm here, you're not going to have a windstorm there when you're talking about a few miles apart. Only at the exascale are we going to be able to do that with, with, a, with regularity. Uh, climate models are going to have to, to be at that at sort of that level. AI and machine learning might help because, you know, we all have a feel for what the weather is like, right? So guess what? You can train machines to sort of have a feel for what it's like as well. But you're so having to train it. I'm going to it. stop you right there because yeah. you said the machine will have a feel. And this is something that I think we are trying to wrap our heads around. Yeah, how do These we, are human words. They are. So how do we get a feel? When, when, when people say, yeah, I have a feel for what that is, how do you get a feel? Well, 
It's through experience. It's through seeing the same thing over and over with slight variations and being able to predict with some amount of fidelity what's, what's going to happen again. Is it going to happen again exactly like that if I, if I run like into it? Like the sky it? is gray, it might rain today. Exactly. Like or, or if it's, it's clear blue sky, it's not going to rain today. I have a feel for that. Even something as simple as shooting a basketball, right? If I sort of, if I sort of cork it this way, I'm going to miss it. If I don't, if I feel it go out of my hand the right way, it's probably going to make it in. Feeling like that. That's very much the kind of thing that happens with AI and ML. You basically train ML and AI tools. ML machine learning. Machine learning on lots and lots of data. So lots and lots of experiences. And then you use that to anticipate if you see a similar data set in the future, what might happen. Does Frontier understand emotion? No, the Frontier does not understand emotion. It doesn't understand tone. Um, it, 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 and it's all it knows is sort of what it's been fed. It can fake understanding emotion, right? So, it, you know, it, it, a lot of the AI and ML tools uh, feel like human, right? Chat GPT is a prime example of this, yeah, right? Yeah, I was going to ask they you feel, about that. They feel rather human, but they're not, right? They're, they're not formulating original thought. They're using a backlog. They're, they're making new things, right? But out of a limited set of things. Uh, and if you steer them right, they'll just copy what they've learned before. Understand. And so does that all get stored, that memory learning gets stored and then the, it can be uh, basically resurfaced as needed? Like That's a, right. And so the, 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 basically there's two sides to the artificial intelligence and machine learning coin. One is training. Uh, it turns out that machine, big, huge machines like Frontier, really good at training, right? Because you need a lot of memory to store all those data, right? To be able to train an AI model on, and you need to be able to do it fast. So huge machine like Frontier is really good at that. Then you get a model, you get a reduced sort of set of things that you, that you can use, and you want to do inference. So you want to feed in some new inputs and get the machine learning model to tell you what the output ought to be. Those are much smaller. They typically fit like on one of those nodes you saw earlier inside the data center fairly effectively. But the key is you probably want to use them everywhere all over the computer. You probably want to use it in lots and lots of places. This was another question for my 11-year-old. How do you ask it a question? The question is usually of the form, if I do A, what will happen? So like an equation almost. Almost, but you want to know, if basically if I change something, what's going to happen? because that's the way I understand how something works. So to go back to my basketball analogy, if I cock my elbow out or keep it in, what, what is that actually gonna to do to the flight of the ball? That's typically very much how you ask the computer a question. You do several simulations where you've tweaked one or two little things as you go along to try to see what the, what the answer actually is. What this big computer is actually used for after the break. Hey there, it's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss, The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. 
From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. Vicky, now we know how you sit down and use this computer. So I wanted to ask you one more question. Well, wait, before you do it, I just have to say, they really buried the lead on us. At the end of the tour, we stopped by an old building in an area that seemed really decrepit, and it was on the verge of demolition almost. We walked into that building, and we came to understand it was actually the site of the Manhattan Project. The reason they built this here was because in around 1938 in Germany, fission was discovered. And so they uh, convinced Albert Einstein to write a letter to President Roosevelt saying we need a program because we don't want the Nazis to get there before we do. And, uh, and so they began a lot of work on what became known as the Manhattan Project. This part of it was to pilot the demonstration of plutonium made in a reactor. That was Bill Cabbage. He's a public information officer at Oak Ridge, and he was the tour guide for the Manhattan Project site. It was incredible. We had spent all day looking at what's next in the future, and all of a sudden we walked back into the past. It was filled with vintage instruments and photographs. Yeah, I really thought the wow factor of the tour had ended when we arrived at this sort of rundown site. But I have to say, it was about as cool as seeing the supercomputer up close. Why, though, do they choose Oak Ridge as one of the sites for the Manhattan Project? Well, we asked Bill that, and here's what he said. This area was uh, recognized. It had a lot of water resources here. It was a rail hub center, Knoxville was. So you had electricity. It was also essentially in the middle of nowhere. That might have been the sense back in the day, but nobody would think that this was in the middle of nowhere anymore. This was an incredible complex with a bunch of buildings we didn't even have a chance to go to. But we did have a chance to sit down and speak with a number of engineers and scientists who were actually using the Frontier system. One of them was so Steve, Hamilton. Steve Hamilton. Uh, I work in the Fission and Fusion Energy Sciences Directorate uh, in a group called the High Performance Computing for Nuclear Applications. Uh, and I am the primary investigator for a project called ExaSMR, uh, which is looking at solving multi-physics problems, um, so problems that involve multiple different domain sciences related to the modeling and simulation of nuclear reactors. And when you say reactor, are we talking a nuclear reactor? So we're talking nuclear fission reactors. Um, so these would be uh, designs that would be targeting production of, in most cases, commercial electricity production. So Steve's work, on a very basic level, is modeling and simulating how new designs for smaller-scale nuclear reactors would function. He and his team are basically using Frontier to stress test these by building a replica, and then they test it out before trying to actually make them at scale. There's multiple reasons that we want to do these simulations. The largest factor really is cost for us. So there are some safety considerations, but in large part, if somebody proposes a reactor design, they say, I think if we had this geometry and we put this fuel and we use this coolant, I think it would be much more efficient than anything we have out there. And, and somebody puts this idea out there. It could take billions of dollars for them to be able to take that idea and push it forward to an actual prototype that they could demonstrate and confirm that, yes, this reactor is going to, to operate exactly the way that I thought it would. 
if we use a computer like Frontier, if we build up a computational model, um, and we don't like to use the term too much, but one of the terms that is used a lot is digital twins. Um, and so you're building up this digital um, computational representation of the system. And if you have enough confidence in your computational tools that they're accurately predicting the physics, so they're predicting what would happen inside of that reactor, then you can perform computational experiments. You don't have to have all of the physical experiments, and so you can build up confidence in these different reactor designs purely using a, a computer like Frontier. Wow, so you're building a replica so that you can test it out before bringing it to scale, essentially. Correct. What are some real-life use cases? Like, would we eventually see them powering small cities? So that, that is definitely in the cards. There are, are people who are targeting reactors, for instance, remote villages uh, that right now are relying on diesel generators for, for their electricity production. Um, if they could deploy a relatively small nuclear reactor, they could have long-term stable energy production for that community and it would ultimately be at a, a substantially lower cost than what a diesel generator would cost to operate over long periods of time. But there, even within the smaller reactors, doesn't necessarily imply that it's these niche markets. So the small modular reactors can also be deployed for large-scale electricity production. We also spoke with Dan Jacobson. He's a chief scientist for something called computational systems biology. So I'm a computational systems biologist. We're trying to utilize data from all of those different types of molecules together with environmental information and then using whole ensembles of algorithms on the exascale computing systems here to solve what are really complex problems. This stuff was pretty mind-blowing. Dan talked to us about a bunch of ways he's been using exascale computing to layer information to tackle issues like climate, health, or future pandemics. But there's one thing he's using Frontier for that we did not expect. One of the big concerns in the U.S. population, but even per perhaps more so in the veterans population, is suicide. Suicide ideation, suicide attempts. And one of the initial questions in that is, are there genetic architectures that predispose people to suicide attempts? We have this wonderful collaboration between the Veterans Administration and the DOE where actually all the electronic health records for the entire VA systems, we have a copy of here at Oak Ridge. It gets updated nightly. And we have genotype information now for over 800,000 patients, and the goal is to get that to 2 million. This is out of the MVP Million Veterans Program from the VA. And this is a tremendous resource for human systems biology and human health, trying to understand, again, the mechanisms of disease, both at the clinical level as well as at the molecular level. Having this large a population that we have genomics information and clinical information for allows us to start to tackle those sorts of questions. Questions about data and privacy with all of these frontier projects kept coming up throughout our visit. So we wanted to know, how are they protecting privacy of these veterans' health records? The, the VA data sits here at a very secure enclave. It's a PHI-certified enclave, um, and there are very strict access controls um, everybody goes through lots of training to be able to use this data, but the data that we see is anonymized. We don't see names or addresses. Um, it's, that's all been scrubbed by the time we see it. Um, and so we're interested in understanding the clinical variables, and we're looking at you know, 
thousands or millions of them, so we're never going to drill down to an individual patient. Genomic tracking is already pretty impressive, but Dan explained that it's just the tip of the iceberg in understanding and treating disease. Uh, we're doing a lot of this in addiction work. But we, we study a lot of neuropsychological conditions, cardiovascular disease, cancer, infectious diseases. And we're actually scaling up to do this on about 2,000 to 3,000 human diseases. So we'll have this complete network model of the interconnections between human disease and mechanistic understanding and how you have a lot of comorbidities, people with multiple diseases that tend to co-occur. This will help us understand why. Why are these things tied together? Another area he and his team built was a climate model of basically the entire planet. We've taken about the past 60 years of, of climate information for every point of land on the planet around the world. And we built vectors, tensors, strings of numbers representing all the different components of the environment at every position. Well, those vectors now, we can use um, the comet code base we developed on Summit and Frontier to compare all of those vectors to each other. So we're trying to say, what are the similar environments of all the possible environments on Earth? So now we have a really fascinating color representation, and this is the highest resolution climate type map ever done in human history. It looks really cool, but the truly amazing thing was learning what you can actually do with this model. Uh, we can zoom in to different areas of interest, in this case for pandemics, things like Eastern Australia, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and Central Africa, all hotspots for different types of viruses that we know are being affected by climate change. And this, this is allowing us to shine the flashlight. Where do we need to be concerned? Where is the biggest relativistic climate change affecting bat populations and viruses and their food sources? Where do we need to be focusing? So to pull this off, we did 9.3 exaflop calculation. That's the fastest calculation done in human history. Overall, it was 168 zeta op, so that's 10 to the 23 zeros. Mathematical operations that had to be calculated to pull this off. That's one of the, one of the largest calculations done. And about 10 to the 17th network edges calculated, that's one of the largest networks ever created. Again, how we're using these sorts of exascale resources to tackle problems we simply couldn't do before. So at this point, we're really starting to get a sense of how much is possible when you have computing power with like 18 zeros after it per second. But I think for us both, this next example was absolutely the most fascinating. It's something called zoonosis, and it made us really glad we were there with some really large brains that are working on these problems. A lot of our focus now is on trying to understand zoonosis, how pathogens, viruses, and other microbes often sit nascent in animal reservoirs. When those viruses get into other species that are not ready for them, like us, that leads to disease, and COVID-19 is one example of that. But the rules of zoonosis, how and why this happens and what's driving it, are actually fairly poorly understood. And then he hit us with flying foxes. So the system we're studying are in flying foxes. So these are these giant bats that have like a six-foot wingspan. They traditionally live in roosts of 200,000 bats in the jungle. They carry these viruses called Hendra and Hinipa viruses, which in the Australian system, if they get into horses, they kill about 70% of the horses. When they get from horses into people, it's also a 70% mortality rate. So, I mean, COVID-19 has been horrific, but it's a sub 1% mortality rate. 70% mortality rate is game over, right? So we want to really understand these systems and learn how to prevent that sort of spread before they become efficient at human-to-human -human spread. All right, Wes, let's take a moment here for you to digest this. It took us a minute. 
The idea that this virus could go from flying foxes to horses and then horses to humans, I mean, this could potentially wipe out populations. So we're actually looking at, we know that when there are food shortages, that that puts the bats under stress, messing with their ecosystem. So we want to understand what causes these food shortages. So we took all these environmental variables and we threw them into one of our explainable AI approaches over time and space. And we're actually, we thought this was a 10-year goal that we could someday learn some of these rules about environment. And by golly, um, we're about to submit the paper showing this predictive model that is very good at picking up these little black dots at the top are when food shortages are occurring. So we, we can start to get up to a year warning when one of these pandemic breakouts could be occurring that we need to start watching for and then zoom in on where and when to look. So you saw all of that in just one day at Oak Ridge. Yeah, we did. And, you know, it's crazy because these are just some of the first projects getting started because it just got built And it's got, as we heard, five to seven years of lifespan left. So there's a lot of room to grow, and they're just getting started. And as we also learned, they're already building the next one. So, I mean, for us, the... One of the big challenges of running on a machine like Frontier, which has also been one of the fun aspects of it, so it's it's all a big challenge, but it's just the, the sheer number of people that you have to bring together to be able to run one of these simulations. The number of interactions and managing that as as you're working, all working towards getting to this final capability that you have to be able to use a machine like Frontier. That's it's been very, very rewarding. Vic, Catherine, next time you go on a field trip, I'm going with you. We'd love to have you, Wes. You got it. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Bergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink, and they both produced this episode. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. Have a great weekend. Kids are at an age where we've been watching the Terminator, Terminator 2, Cyberdyne. Will it become self-aware? Does, do, you, do you believe that it has the capability to become self-aware? I, I don't. Uh, I will say that uh, colleagues of mine who are interested in this, this question that I talked about, that I just talked about, about where do, where do the heavy elements come from, um, they built a, a code module to sort of do that, to sort of trace the transmutation of elements as they get heavier and heavier. They called it Skynet which I thought was like dangerously arrogant of their point. Yeah. I thought I thought really you're going to tempt fate it's a little too it's a little too real. We're getting a little late in the game if you will to, to call something that. But yeah, they just plowed ahead and in fact they even use in you know on their website. Yeah, they use the symbol from the movie. Yeah. Hey there. It's Sarah Holder, host of Big Take. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. 
The deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment, and dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.